thought I would take a few minutes uh, before I kind of dive in to, uh, well, make fun of Elisa for about five minutes. No, that was last time. That's not this time. Uh, I, I thought what I might do is give you a little insight into uh, the, the, how the preaching world works. And that is, um, there are two ways, really, that people mostly preach. One of them is going to be topical. Hey, we're going to take three weeks and we're going to preach on faith. And it's nice because it's relatively easy. Um, but the, the problem with it is you are only as good as what you know. And the nice thing about expository and why this church and most churches are expository, or most good churches, I won't say all, but preach mostly expository is because the way it works is scripture teaches you. And you take a passage of scripture and as, as the person who's going to preach, we study that scripture and we look at it verse by verse and we and we come to you as a congregation with the things that we have learned ourselves. We let scripture teach us instead of, in effect, teaching scripture. And so, uh, so I love expository preaching. And so when I asked him, well, what are, what is, where are you at in your series? He said, well, we're in, we're in Acts. And, uh, and I said, oh, we're in Acts. And he said, Acts 21, 1 through 16. And there's a lot of cool places in Acts. And my first thought when I read this was, oh, great. Because the downside of expository preaching is that sometimes you get to a passage and you're like, oh, that's not near as cool as I thought. <laughs> and um, and you, you get there and it's like, oh, two people told Paul not to go to Jerusalem and he went anyway. <laughs> you know, but this is the beauty of scripture is that as we study it and as we test God and his word that says that all of scripture is profitable, we find for ourselves that in fact scripture is incredibly profitable. And whereas when I started this week, I probably would have said, not the passage I'd have picked. Uh, at the end of this week, I'm like, this is the perfect scripture to preach today. It's a perfect scripture for me to have learned this week. And so I, I genuinely hope that you enjoy uh, and that you get something out of this, uh, this message, knowing that I have gotten a lot out of the preparation for this. And uh, another little insight, just I view this as my spiritual act of worship. And so if there was nobody in this room, this would still be my act of worship to God. And so... I am thankful for the fact that you are here. It does make my worship a little more meaningful and a little easier, frankly. But, um, but that, that is, that's what I bring. And so hopefully through this message, you'll, your act of worship will be reflecting on the scripture, reflecting on the message, and applying it. And so let's enter into this together and let's pray. And God, we're thankful this morning. Uh, we're thankful for so many things. We don't take for granted the joy of being able to gather together as a people and worship in this pandemic. We don't take for granted the fact that we are able to worship freely. We don't take these things for granted. We do thank you for these things. We thank you that you are a God that is both good and great. We are, thank we are thankful that you are sovereign over the good and the bad of our lives and that you make good out of things that are seemingly not. 
We pray you would bless us with your word in the hearing of it and the applying of it, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A little bit about me. For those of you who don't know me, I am currently I'm a health and safety officer for a department of the state of California. And I started that job in November of 2019. And when I started that job, I thought, as a health and safety officer, you're going to do some office ergonomic evaluations, maybe show people where to put their screen heights, things like that. Maybe you're going to do some safety inspections. Uh, maybe you're going to write some policies, making people, you know, I don't know, whatever, wash their hands when they use the restroom, whatever. A pretty cushy job, honestly, right? Um, nobody's splitting atoms being a health and safety officer. But then just a couple months later, start to hear these messages about COVID. Um, and still, even then, not a big deal. Basically, if, you know, at that point, if you haven't traveled to, from China, then you're fine. Well, then it gets to be about March, and all of a sudden, things change. Everything starts to get a little more intense. Every day there's some new guidance or direction from the CDC or the CDPH, Department of Public Health, or local health and safety. And then one day San Francisco decides we're just shutting the thing down. And we had people in San Francisco, so we had to figure out how do I deal with San Francisco versus how I deal with everybody else. And then LA shuts down. And then the state shuts down. And everybody's looking at me going, well, you're the health and safety officer, <laughs> right? And of course, of course, I pulled out the playbook for pandemics, right? You know, I was alive in 1920, so of course I was able to help out. Um, everybody looks at me, you know, like, all right, well, I guess I am the health and safety officer. I better know something. Uh, but it was complicated. We saw the economy shrink by 25%. We saw unemployment take a, uh, um, uh, uh, we saw unemployment rise to levels that made the Great Depression look, you know, like a like a blip. Um, personally, you know, and I'm one of the lucky ones. I kept my job, but took a 10% pay cut. Um, unemployment skyrockets. Businesses close. People are dying and. We're wondering, where is God in this? And thank goodness that we have this common foe, the pandemic, and we're all able to unite as a common country and fight the battle, right? Right. Um, you know, it, next time, if I were God, I probably wouldn't plan a pandemic for an election year. But, <laughs> um, you know, but God, you know, God is sovereign. We're going to talk about that. So I know there was a reason that happened. But it raised kind of this thing, it's called the paradox of skeptics. And there's this idea, people who focus on God's goodness, they, may, they might not say it from a theological perspective, but from a heart perspective, they kind of had this idea that God was standing around going, well, what do I do? I didn't see this coming. And then, you know, and then the, the, the people who focus more on God's greatness and his sovereignty, you're like, well, this is God's judgment because we've abandoned God. And I had people ask me that question. Do you think this is God's judgment on California? And I said, well, they're way better than us in Texas and they got it worse than we have it. 
like so I, I, I you know I, I don't think so but we'll ask God when we get to heaven uh, but it, but it raised this kind of paradox of the skeptics which is is God not good enough to keep us from evil or is God not great enough to protect us from evil and and it, it's on the face of it kind of a compelling question but it and especially in the middle of a pandemic when we've seen more people die in the United States than we saw die in World War II um, it's compelling on the face of it, but it fails to take an important thing into consideration. And this is a passage that helps us see that. This is a passage that helps us see that the story isn't over today. This is, stor this is a passage that helps us see that that paradox fails to take time into consideration. So I'm excited to preach this passage this morning in a time when people may be wondering, where is God? As a little background on this passage, Paul decides in chapter 20, maybe before, but we find out about it in chapter 20, that Paul is going to Jerusalem, and he is moving in that direction. So I'm going to start with a reading of the passage. Uh, Acts 21, 1 through 16, and I'm reading from the ESV. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to cause, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to the Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. First thing we see in this passage, and you see that this passage is all about the trustworthiness of God, is that we should trust in the one who knows the future. This is an example of God's greatness, that he knows the end from the beginning. 
We know God knows the future because every moment is now to God. Isaiah 46.10 says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. And God can know the end from the beginning. And I don't want to get too heady here, but he can know the end from the beginning because there is no future to God. That God always is. Revelation twenty two thirteen says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God created time, and he exists outside of it. So he's not bound by the constraints of time. In Genesis 1, 1, this used to be a question I'd ask the students when I taught junior high, was what is the first thing God created? And, um, and they'd look at day one of creation or whatever, and it but the verse reads, in beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I think, one of the, I think the first thing God created was time. Because everything happens in a time sequence after that. But time is a creation of God's. And he exists outside of it. So to God, every moment is now. It isn't like he's even looking forward in this hazy sense of what's going to happen in the future. He looks at tomorrow the way that we look at today. And so when he says something is going to happen in the future, we can be confident because he's watching it happen in the future the way that we're watching our present. In my own life, I've had an opportunity to witness this. I remember I uh, um, was encouraged by Tim about 20 years ago, a little more than 20 years ago now, to move to Windsor. And I expressed to Tim all the reasons why that made absolutely no sense at all. And if you knew anything about Windsor about 25 or 30 years ago, um, not to, you know, all right, it was a pit, okay? It was a pit. I don't know how to say it nicer than that. It's very different now. It's delightful. Love it to death. It was a pit. So it feels like, yeah, you gotta move up to Windsor. It's like, hey, you gotta move to Modesto, you know? Um, it's just it, not quite as cold or not quite as warm. Um, and I was given all these reasons why it's, no. I had a hundred things going on. I give this laundry list of things. Well, God, one by one, takes, uh, takes those things away. And it was like God knew. Um, as those things were being taken away, I could look at it and go, you know what? God knew this. God is working with intention. He knew what my future looked like, and he could, as I was going through those things, because he gave me that, I was able to look at those things in a more reassuring posture as opposed to a panicked posture, uh, because I knew that God knew the future. Um, in a similar way, uh, see, I'm just like Paul. I don't know if anybody, you know, just like, just like me, um, Paul is encouraged by God. God is preparing him. God's directing his future. He's revealing that he knows the future. And he does this. The first warning he gets is from his trusted disciples. They say, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul's response in verse 5 is, we departed and went on our journey. Um, I wonder if anybody has a spouse like that. Um, you know, and I read some commentaries on this, 
I'm wondering if I am a spouse like this. Um, I read some commentaries on this because the way it sounds, it sounds almost as if uh, Paul is disobeying God. God says, don't go to Jerusalem. But most commentaries land, and I would agree with this, that it was more of a warning than it was an admonition or a directive. And part of the reason I say that is because there's nothing in Paul's writings or in Acts um, that would indicate that there's any reprimand given to Paul for this, that there's any remorse on Paul's part for doing it. Um, and so I, I view it more as a warning. And, um, and then he gets a second warning. That's in verses 10 and 11, and it's a little more specific. It isn't just don't go. It is you will be bound and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. And that's significant, that part about being delivered to the Gentiles. And the reason it's significant is, you may remember from John 18, the Jews took Jesus to Pilate because only the Gentiles could implement capital punishment. So when it says that Paul is going to be handed over to the Gentiles, there's only one reason the Jews hand Paul over to the Gentiles. It's because they want him dead. And the, the Romans have already shown that they're willing to do that. They've done that with Christ. And so it is significant that, he, that it is explained to him that he is going to be bound and he is going to be handed to the Gentiles. And what's Paul's response? Is to keep going. Paul's placed his life in the hands of the one who knows the future. I don't know if you know the old hymn, many things about the tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. And that's kind of the posture that Paul takes in this passage. Um, that Paul has revealed, or God has revealed that he knows the future. And Paul is willing to abide in that future. Application. What area of your life do you think is too big for God? Paul, looking at the warnings before him, could easily have shrunk away. All of us have at times in our lives, I'm sure, where we have um, stood in fear and decided to go a different route. Um, but what area of your life do you think is too big for God? I'd encourage you to examine that. Not only does God show that he knows the future, but he shows in this that he knows you. Or he knows Paul. And we can, and we can trust that God knows us too. And that he talks to us in a way that we can appreciate and understand. And this is an example of God's goodness. That God speaks to Paul in a way and through people that would be meaningful to him and would have an impact to him. Verse 4, we can see that they were trusted disciples. It says, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. That these weren't just people. They were people that Paul knew. They were people that Paul trusted. And Paul trusted that they had a line to the Holy Spirit. And so when they said, when they warned him about what was coming in his future... He knew that was a valid warning. He knew that was coming from God. And we see in the second verse, it, it reminds us of the prophets of the Old Testament. Verse 10, 11, 
you know, he takes, the, he takes the belt and he binds his own hands and feet. And he says, the person who owns this belt is going to experience this. And, and we see in the Old Testament, which Paul studied extensively, remember. We see in the Old Testament, um, God does this a lot. These people have, they, they use physical objects and physical things to be object lessons for his prophecies. Um, a couple of the crazier ones in Ezekiel 4. In fact, I, it was Jewish tradition that people weren't allowed to read Ezekiel until they were 30. Uh, because it's so crazy. Um, they wanted to make sure people had the right maturity to ingest it. Uh, and, yeah, I wish I wish had been 30 when I did. But um, I love Ezekiel, by the way. But, uh, uh, but let's take a brick and build siege works around it and lay on your side for over a year and lay on your other side for over a year and, oh, by the way, eat bread baked over human dung. And it's like, but that's how God, God used these object lessons, sometimes in the extreme, to get through to his people, right? Hosea 1, if you read that sometime... Isaiah is called to marry a, quote, promiscuous woman as an object lesson, showing God's marriage to his people who had been unfaithful. And he has these kids, and they're called literally, and uh, literally not loved and not my people. Uh, you know, how'd you like to have those names in junior high? You know, um, and better yet, you wonder what their therapy bill is, right? I'm sure that they had you know, nicknames like Sparky and, you know, <laughs> Nugget and things like that. But still, what's your name? Not loved. But God used these. Those are a couple of kind of extreme examples. But God used these physical object lessons to, uh, to reveal prophecy to his people. And so when this person comes before Paul, who studied the Old Testament extensively, and he does this, it resonates with Paul, I think. Certainly, Paul accepts it. Um, there's nothing in here to indicate that he questions it. And so I, I think that God chose these people to communicate this because God knew Paul. And I think God knows us in the same way, and he talks to us in a way that we can appreciate and understand. Um, application. In what areas of your life do you need to hear from God? Matthew 7, 7 says, Seek and you'll find. I'll give an example of this from my own life. I was praying about Windsor Christian Academy. Some of you know I was uh, um, on the board with the, uh, with the academy and and had a lot of oversight responsibilities with it. And I could see some things on the horizon, some real challenges in the long-term viability of the school. And I really was seeking God on those things. And God told me, not in an audible voice, but just as clearly as I hear you talking to me, told me it wasn't the school that needed to change, that it was me that needed to change, that I needed to that, I, that my time had come to leave that responsibility. Um, and he spoke to me in a way that I could hear him. 
And I think God spoke to Paul in a way that Paul could hear. And I think God throughout Scripture speaks to people in a way that they can hear. And I think it's important. Uh, if you've ever read the book of Job, God speaks to Job. Who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge out of this cloud, of the storm cloud? Uh, but then speaks to Elijah in a still small voice. And he speaks to us in a way that we can hear. And that's an example of his goodness. And I think most importantly, just as we can trust him to know the future, and we can trust his greatness, and we can trust him that he knows us, uh, and that's an example of his goodness, we can also trust in the one who is using that knowledge to work all things for good. Time is what breaks the skeptic's paradox that we talked about. That God is working all things for good. One, we can remember that God knows everything. Job 37, 6 says, Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? 1 John three twenty says, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. And knowing everything includes knowing every possible scenario. Uh, in 1 Samuel 23, David asks God, hey, if I do this, how will the people respond? And God tells him. And uh, Jesus in Matthew 11 says, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for them than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. The idea is God knows what would have happened. God knows not just everything, but he knows all the possible outcomes of all of the choices. And with all of that knowledge, he is working good from everything, even bad things. One of the first verses when I started junior high ministry, one of the first verses I had to memorize was Romans, Romans 8, 28, and I'm thankful for it. Um, I read it because I didn't memorize it in the ESV. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes, God is working all things for good. It isn't that God isn't, isn't that God isn't great enough to keep us from evil, and it isn't that God isn't good enough to protect us from evil. It's that God is going to use those things to make good. And we see that with Paul. We see in this test, we see, we see in this passage that there are these bad things that are going to happen, and we wonder, why doesn't God protect Paul from it? We wonder, why does God want that for Paul? And it's a test. And I think, like, God knows everything, so God knows the answer to that test. But you know who doesn't know the answer to that test? Maybe Paul, and certainly the people around him. When we're tested, I don't think it's because God doesn't know how we're going to respond, but I do think sometimes it's because we don't know how we're going to respond. And the people around us don't know how we're going to respond. And so we see, um, we see Paul have confidence in these events. 
And there's a confidence that comes with not being surprised. God isn't surprised. He's in God's will. He's in God's care. And we know that God's not surprised because he's already told Paul what's going to happen. But Paul's response encourages and emboldens others, too. It says in verse 15, some who are present are going, or verse 15, after these days we got ready to, uh, and went up to Jerusalem. It means that some of those people were going with Paul. And when they heard, you're going to be bound and you're going to be given to the Gentiles, they probably heard, and maybe I'm going to be bound and I'm going to go with the Gentiles too. Um, but Paul's response emboldens them. And they go with Paul. Um, and they say, hey, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And when it actually happens, I think it may be more of a reassurance of God's sovereignty. And I will give you a little spoiler alert. It works out exactly the way that it's described, right? That if you read on in Acts, you're going to see things happen exactly the way it's described. Paul's in prison. He'd hand it over to the Gentiles. And you ask, why did God allow this to happen? Was God not great enough to protect Paul? Or was he not good enough to protect Paul? And time reveals that God was both great and good, working events for the good of Paul and the glory of God. And we see through his arrest, Paul was able to share the gospel with a bunch of people. He was able to share with the crowd in Jerusalem in Acts 22. He was able to share with leaders like Felix and Agrippa, Acts 24 and 25. He was able to share with the Jews in Rome in chapter 28. And in Rome, he was able to share with the guards in the household of Caesar. In fact, he says in Philippians 1, the whole imperial guard knows my imprisonment is for Christ. And we see Paul was able, through these events, to encourage and embolden believers. In Colossians 4, he says the people remember my chains. Um, and we get an insight into that with Philippians 1. And he says, What has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. There's this idea that if Paul can go through it, I can do it. If Paul can risk it, I can risk it. Um, and we see that Paul, these actions, these things that happened to Paul, worked good. That they emboldened other people. They give him opportunities to share the gospel he never would have had. And best, even today, you know, what, almost 2,000 years later, we have the prison epistles of Paul. We have Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. They were all written when he was in prison, bound and handed over to the Gentiles. And so you may think to yourself, well, it worked out for God, and it even worked out for some of the other people, but how did it work out for Paul? He was in chains the whole time. But in my experience, and I think scripturally supportable, is the idea that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied. And Psalm 145 says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that isn't to say, like, I'm really satisfied having a big meal and sitting on a couch. That isn't to say that God's glorified by that. Um, but it is to say that we are most satisfied when we are bringing the most glory to God. And Paul, through this imprisonment, 
through this being handed over to the Gentiles, brought the most glory to God. Uh, interesting, in none of Paul's writings does he express more joy than in Philippians, which is one of the prison epistles. Um, application. Where do you need to remember that the story isn't over yet? Some of us have kids, and maybe our kids, especially as adult children, maybe they've made decisions that we don't, uh, we don't love. Guess what? Story's not over yet. Uh, maybe if you're in a job that you don't like, guess what? The story's not over yet. Maybe if you're in a marriage that's hard, Story's not over yet. Where do you need to remember that the story isn't over yet? In times of uncertainty and great unknowns, trust the one who knows. As I conclude, I want to encourage you to trust the one who knows the future. In what areas of your life are you acting as if God is surprised and maybe too small to handle? And maybe the situation is too big for God. Um, I want to encourage you to trust the one who knows you, knows the number of hairs on your head, or lack thereof. In what areas of your life do you need to hear God listening and following what he has to say? Where do you need to expend effort to hear God? It says, if you search for me with all of your heart, you'll find me. And sometimes, and I'm guilty of this more than anybody. Oh, God speaks to me mostly through experience. So, I, you know, so I'm just waiting for God to do something. Whereas in the times where I've heard God's voice most clearly, they've been in times of fasting. They've been in times of intense prayer. They've been in times of effort. When I sought the voice of the Lord, instead of just waiting for events to unfold in some... Uh, some way like Ruth and Esther where things just kind of happen miraculously to bring about certain conclusions. Where do we need to expend effort to hear the voice of God? Trust the one who knows the future. Trust the one who knows you. And trust that the one who knows us and who loves us is working all, good, all things for good. Even the hard things. And that isn't to say that God wants bad things to happen. God wanted... Uh, Eden for us. God wants and will have the end of Revelation for us. But in this season, there are bad things to happen. C.S. Lewis said um, that God whispers to us in our joys and he speaks to us in our conscience, but he screams to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to a deaf and dying world. Um, can you trust that the one who knows us and loves us is working all things for the good? If you are, uh, or if you would like to have the assurance that God is working for your good, giving purpose and intention to your life and bringing glory to himself through you, maybe today's the day. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And see, God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And that love is expressed through making Christ the Lord of your life, handing your life to him and saying, in effect, you take over because I've made a mess of things trying to run my own life. 
And that dependence is understood by simply recognizing your need to be saved, that you cannot save yourself, and that Christ showed his power to save by rising from the dead. If you'd like to receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior today, even if you're watching at home, would you please just raise your hand? I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to call you forward. But I'd like to pray over you if I can. I may be able to not see you, or I may not be able to see you, but God can. Uh, I'd like for you to pray with me. God, I come before you today recognizing that I need a Lord and a Savior. I confess you as my Lord and Savior and pray that you would lead me, guide me, and work for my good as I seek to love you and accomplish your purposes for my life. Help me to find my greatest joy, and I seek to love and honor you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer, would you please let us know? We'd like to give you some help, maybe give you some resources and encouragement. Uh, if you're online, please go to redemptionhillsr.org. You can click connect on the top navigation bar and click new to RHC or Jesus. And you'll fill out a little simple connect card and the church will reach out to you. Uh, God bless you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and have a great week.